0: The people that stormed the Capitol, as well as the majority of the Republican Party, are still not disavowing what happened on January 6th. So we're at a very dangerous, divided place in our country, and these hate groups and those that are have been radicalized are still very mobilized.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Americans were shocked by the violent insurrection carried out by a pro Trump mob at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. President Trump had spent months goading his supporters to rally behind him and dog whistling to white supremacist groups to rise up, and they heeded his calls. Susan Cork is not surprised by the rising tide of hate. She is director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is known for tracking and exposing hate groups and other domestic extremists. The Southern Poverty Law Center recently launched the second season of its podcast, Sounds Like Hate, which explores the stories and people behind the 838 hate groups around the country, including throughout New England. I began by asking Cork to talk about the state of hate groups in America following the Trump presidency and the January 6th insurrection.
0: I'd say that right now that they are highly mobilized. Um, you know, it's, it's historically been the case that with the Democratic administration that there is a rise in hate groups. But I would say that right now we face a particularly perilous time that following four years of Donald Trump, where they felt like um, they had the year of the White House um, and that they were operating more out in the open and that the Republican Party and the Trump administration in particular kind of widens the Overton window for letting in some of these extreme fringe beliefs into kind of the mainstream discussion. So in case in the case of the insurrection, um, you know, we've been watching these hate groups becoming increasingly radicalized. Um, the 2020 was sort of a perfect storm. You had the coronavirus. You had uh, people spending increasing amounts of time online, increasingly radicalizing online. And um, what has changed, I'd say, is that rather than um, the emphasis on being part-caring members of hate groups, there's, it's more diffuse now. Um, and uh, people are radicalizing, you know, visiting different sites, jumping between groups. Um, so hate group identification is less important than it once was because the re- the internet has been such a radicalizing force and the Trump administration was such a radicalizing force. And so the hate groups really came together in 2020 under sort of a movement behind some shared narratives such as um, anti-masking, um, anti-government, anti-democratic narratives, um, the, and then of course the, the big lie um, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump was kind of the ultimate mobilizing rallying cry that brought um, different hate groups together in front of the Capitol, but also many, the majority was affiliated not at all with hate groups, but had become radicalized through the narrative and through some of these ideologies. So what you have now in 2021 is, the, you know, the people that stormed the Capitol as well as the majority of the Republican Party are still not disavowing what happened on January 6th. Um, so we're at a very dangerous, divided place in our country and um, the, these hate groups and those that are have been radicalized are still very mobilized.
1: Well, let's pick it up there. Uh, this week, Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy said that he would oppose the creation of commission to study the storming of the Capitol by the pro-Trump mob because it would not examine unrelated political violence by the left. Can you respond to this and give it some context?
0: Sure. I mean, that that is just insanely irresponsible. Um, and it goes against what his initial reactions were um, the day and the day after the storming of the Capitol. Um, it is. It has been proven um, through multiple sources, through SPLC's tracking, that those that stormed the Capitol that day were had been planning violence openly on the internet. They were there to try to stop the democratic process of the counting of the electoral votes. They used violence. Um, people died, and they were there to bring violence to lawmakers including republicans so it is un- uh, unbelievable to me that kevin mccarthy is you know the one of the top republicans is not disavowing the violence that happened is trying to rewrite history um is letting you know marjorie taylor green stay in committee uh, assignments and you know you know, the <laughs> successful campaign against Liz Cheney. So it is just unbelievable.
1: But I, I, I want to address specifically that question of, uh, of high, uh, political violence by the left. So yeah. is how big? Compare that to political violence on the right.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no comparison. I get asked this question a lot um, because a lot of our hate, the majority of our hate groups are. On the far right, and that's not because SPLC is biased politically. It's because the preponderance of violence is coming from the right. Um, It is something like ninety-two percent, and only eight percent of it is coming from the left. So, you know, I've spoken with people in the FBI and um, even people within the Trump administration. Elizabeth Newman, who was in the Trump administration at DHS, and she was, you know, very publicly. Spoke up about the fact that, look, there's no comparison between what's happening on the right and the left. You can't skew the data. If the majority of the threat is coming from the far right, that, that is where the resources should be focused. That should where there should be consequences and accountability. And so it is just factually inaccurate and irresponsible for Kevin McCarthy to be pretending otherwise. It's just that it's not a both sidesism that you need to address the threat that is occurring.
1: It makes me think about how you know you you respond to the thing that you're looking for. You know, we learned uh, just a week ago that the leadership of the Department of Defense under Trump did acknowledge that they authorized uh, that they spoke to Trump about d- deploying the National Guard, but his instructions were to protect the protesters, meaning his supporters who were attacking the Capitol. So he was actually deploying the U.S. armed forces. To protect violent, <laughs> a violent mob trying to overthrow the Capitol.
0: He said, "These are my people. You know, we love you." And you know, all, as all of these people who have charges facing them, they their defense is that they were acting on behalf of their president. They felt like they had been called there by the president of the United States. Um, and so, you know, it it complicates SPLC's methodology because these groups we call anti-government. Um, But this was actually the Republican party and the president of the United States who they felt like they were acting on behalf of. So I'd say that's the anti-democratic hard right, not just anti-government anymore.
1: Uh, I want to turn to the new podcast that uh, is being released by the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's actually the second season of Sounds Like Hate. And, um, A new episode of this podcast explores how people get get radicalized and follows the story of a Massachusetts man, Chris Hood. Could you talk a little bit about Chris Hood's story? And, you know, part of the interest here, um, you know, you're you're speaking on the Vermont conversation is the the fact that hate groups are alive and well in New England. So um, let's start by talking about who Chris Hood is.
0: Um, sure. Uh, so Chris Hood is actually interesting in that he represents kind of the new, kind of a new phenomenon and that he was not just affiliated with one particular group, that he jumped between ideologies, um, and, uh, you know, became radicalized in different ways and then, you know, it was there, um at the insurrection of the capital,
1: Right. He went from, um, he's now calls himself the regional organizer of the Proud Boys. He was with Patriot Front. And then he became part of something called the New England National Socialist Club. Um, and is that common that there's no real loyalty to one group? They're just sort of, it's very fluid?
0: That, I mean, that is what has changed. And that is the kind of the new landscape that we're facing, that it is much more fluid. Um, and that, you know, in terms of SPLC, how we're tracking it, it changes our methodology as well, because you can't put it into these neat, neat boxes that, um, you know, on the online radicalization is increasingly the place where people are radicalizing. And that makes it much harder to track. Um, and, you know, it makes it more about kind of tracking the money and tracking the influence. Of the platforms.
1: Um, so, you know, back to this idea about uh, hate groups in New England, uh, SBLC publishes a hate map. Uh, it shows that hate groups are in all the states of New England, including Vermont, where Patriot Front is a group that's listed as active in Vermont. Um, can you talk about extremism in New England?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, and extremism in New England is not uh, different, I'd say, than than other places. You know, as a whole, um, you know, in the South, you have kind of more that the hate groups often have kind of like a neo-Confederate spin to them. Um, in the Northeast, um, you know, there's only a few of the groups. The Patriot you mentioned, the Patriot Front. The Proud Boys have a presence there. Um, and, you know, often the intersection with some of these groups and Second Amendment rights, which was another one of the narratives that was uniting these groups um, beyond hate groups. Um, that That's one of the trends within New England. Um, the Patriot Front, which you mentioned, um, you know, is known for its kind of theatrical rhetoric and And activism, um, and you know, is an SPLC designated hate group under the white nationalist ideology. Um, So the the groups that are in New England tend to kind of broadly this kind of white nationalist identification, and then within the white nationalist movement, there is of course a real spectrum from those who are going kind of in the political direction and seeking to have these extreme views infused into the Republican Party political mainstream. And then there's a really dangerous faction um, within the white nationalist uh, movement that is increasingly focused on violence and um, increasingly focused on a hard reset of America. Using anti-democratic means. So that that's particularly worrisome that um, you have this very violent kind of tip of the spear that's looking to engage more people into that movement. And for uh, that movement, what's particularly attractive to them in terms of recruits is uh, current and former military and current and former law enforcement. Um, and that's a trend that's not unique to the Northeast. Um, but I would say that that's uh, you know the fact that Second Amendment rights are, you know, in New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine, um, you know, are are an issue that um, animates many people that are those that are you know perhaps more susceptible to this far right ideology, um, something like that.
1: Do you look at uh, so January six has also provoked a, a response, a you know prosecutions of hundreds of people. Um, was January 6th a step forward or a step back for the white nationalist movement for the, the white, the hate groups?
0: I'd say we're sort of on a, I call it sort of a moment of reckoning um, because I don't think they are not in any way. They don't see January 6th as a failure. um, And they don't see the Biden administration as legitimate. So I am SPLC is seeing um, that these groups are continuing to mobilize. They're increasingly um, finding new ways to be connecting online. So it, uh, at the moment of reckoning, you know many of the technology platforms uh, that had not done enough, frankly, that frankly failed to address the threat that was happening out in the open on their platforms. It wasn't a particularly secret planning uh, for the inter- insurrection.
1: To, to, that's an understatement, we should yeah. note. This was happening in, in bold print and being, um, you know, coming from the White House itself.
0: No, yeah. And, you know, SPLC wasn't doing super secret monitoring of this. They were pretty open about it. Um, so it was a real failure of, you know, intelligence collection and sharing. It was a failure of um, law enforcement and it was a failure of the technology companies. Um, so... In the immediate aftermath, the fact that there were all of these arrests um, and the fact that the technology companies finally started to do something and de-platform these individuals and groups, you know, it caused kind of a, a slowdown in the short term, but in the longer term, they are starting to Mobilize back up. So I think you know in the, in the summer and moving forward, the the narratives that mobilized them during the Trump administration, you know, now it's anti vaxxing and still Second Amendment gun rights. As the Biden administration, you know, implements um, more of a, a democratic agenda, um, that the you know, Trump administration was very effective at branding as you know extreme socialism. You're going to see more people mobilizing again behind these shared narratives. And then when you, when we reach the 2022 midterm election campaign season, um, I think you'll see more of that as well. And also, you know, the Republican party is really focused on these voter suppression bills too. So there's been, you know, not just kind of this more extreme um, violent protest action, but you're seeing a united front from the Republican Party to push through these really troubling voter suppression bills across the country.
1: How much do you worry that the Republican Party in, you know, purging Liz Cheney for not embracing the, the big lie, for now opposing any reckoning, any investigation of January 6th, is actually going to be the largest front group for these for the the hate groups and extremist groups.
0: Yeah. I mean, some people have said it clearly that, you know, essentially the Republican party is becoming an extension of these, of the far right. Um, It, it, and the aims of the far right are a hard reset of America. Um, There is no, you know, the democratic party is the Republican leaders are calling for unity and calling us to ignore what happened on January 6th how can you compromise if they won't even acknowledge the truth? I mean, those that I watch in the Republican Party who still appear to be sane, such as Liz Cheney, um, Adam Kinzinger, um, and, you know, the the handful of others who have been outspoken in not only, you know, not only accepting the election results, but those who have openly been challenging uh, the big lie that led up to it and Donald Trump's uh, Continued insistence that he won the election. There, unfortunately, there's very few of them. You know, some of them are talking about forming a third party. Others are, you know, kind of trying to win back the heart of the Republican Party on conservative principles. But it's, you know, it's very few of them. It's, it's shocking. I mean, it's really shocking. I worked in both the Bush and the Obama administration, so I've always been somebody who, you know, sees the path. Uh, to unity is trying to find bipartisan compromises and that, you know, we can disagree on, you know, many policy issues, but at the, at the heart of where compromise should be is on basic issues of what America is as a democracy and what we stand for. And, you know, the rule of law, our constitution, um, you know, our uh, three branches of government and the independence of, of each branch, the core Human rights and democratic principles that is what America has stood for and stands for in the world, even though we you know of course have our own troubled history. I just I can't I can't make sense of it on some level.
1: So one of the comments uh, and commentaries that I heard recently was just that um, the past, the traditional divide between Republican and Democrat, big government, small government uh, those kind of things has really shifted to uh, a pro-democracy, anti-democracy, or pro-constitution, anti-constitution. And there's no longer a, you know, a, a, a palpable ideological split along um, you know, traditional partisan lines. Uh, do you, what do you make of that? Is it really between democracy and anti-democracy at this moment, between the two parties?
0: Um, I mean, that, of course, it oversimplifies a, the issue a bit, but I, I mean, it's not wrong. Um, so I've spent a lot of my career focused on um, looking at uh, the deterioration of democracy abroad and particularly the rise of um, the far right and uh, the former Soviet Union and Europe. and. Um, The rise of authoritarianism and, you know, the the playbook for I actually with uh, scholars at Brookings wrote the democracy playbook that looks at, um, you know, how authoritarians seek to undermine democracy and how um, all democratic actors in a democracy can fight back against that. And in the authoritarian toolkit, the, the things that they go after first are exactly what Donald Trump did, that he it was very strategic to call the media fake news and to undermine Americans trust in the media. So now essentially we have two very different narratives that are not overlapping, that Americans are not hearing the same truth anymore. Um, those that are watching Fox News are getting a very different story than those that are um, watching CNN or NPR or uh, you know even any of the just kind of centrist uh, AP and Reuters. And I can't uh, emphasize that, you know, the far right media ecosystem is making possible this far right radicalization because you have these fringe ideas that are now getting millions of viewers on, you know, Tucker Carlson's show where he is repeating the, the great replacement theory that is the and cry for um, the white supremacist movement. So, uh, so that's number one is, you know, we don't have the same media environment. So how can you come together if you're not even having a conversation or seeing the same information? The Republican Party is increasingly following the authoritarian playbook. And that also includes this big push for voter suppression that they don't want to, you know, enable free voting.
1: I want to talk about the road to radicalization, which is something that uh, the SPLC podcast sounds like hate. Chronicles, um, what are some of the common themes and stories that you hear of people who get radicalized?
0: Sure. And I just want to say, you know, there's many different paths to radicalization and, you know, while there's, you know, that it doesn't, there's not a typical pathway. Um, I will say that, you know, 2020, again, was a very difficult year that many of the um, underlying drivers, such as isolation, Um, You know, for children that they're spending more unsupervised time online, that they're feeling isolated, that it's a period of uncertainty, um, that, that, you know, they have access to uh, these more extreme, uh, more extreme content online. And those that are on the extreme right are looking to radicalize people. So it's an explicit strategy. Um, So in terms of what parents should be looking out for, they should be having open conversations with their children. They should be alert to signs of radicalization. Um, SPLC did a a project with American University and their peril laboratory um, and produced a a guidebook for parents, caregivers, and educators on, uh, on how to identify signs of radicalization how to understand the drivers of radicalization and how parents can intervene more effectively to off-ramp their children if they start to go down that path. And our studies showed that if you if parents spent just seven minutes reading that guide, that they were 80% more equipped to understand and identify the drivers of radicalization and to intervene effectively with, with children and, and youth.
1: How do you how do you intervene when you see somebody sort of heading down this path?
0: Yeah, I mean so intervening earlier is one, but you know, I mean some of the things are are obvious but not obvious when you have parents who are overloaded, you know, dealing with the pandemic and trying to work, but you know, it's having open conversations with your child, it's exposing them to different viewpoints and different content. Um, you know, if you it's being alert to the the narratives that are the ones thing that are being pushed by white supremacists, such as you know anti immigrant sem- sentiments, the um, that the coronavirus is a myth, um, that um, you know the superiority narratives, the um, Jew- Jewish conspiracies. Be alert to them using those sorts of Um, conspiracy theories and far-right narratives, and try to have conversations with them and expose them to uh, more diverse audiences. However, you know, there is a point in that, you know, in the podcast sounds like hate, not successful story. So this is a child, 17 years old, that, you know, he radicalizes and he says in his own words that he didn't think that anything could have stopped him from that path. Um, that the school tried, his parents tried. But on the other hand, you have people within his family who who believed in Hitler ideology. And like many parents, though, they also didn't really believe that their child could be bad, um, that the signals that they were seeing, they didn't really think he would resort to violence. And what they did is they let the son go on the family compound and essentially turn it into a paramilitary training ground. The family left guns there. And ultimately the family reported him to the FBI before violence happened. But um, I think it's a warning, a cautionary tale, uh, but there are certainly ways that the parents, the family, the school could have intervened for a more effective outcome there. So we also wanted to leave people in the podcast with a sense of hope. And that if parents are struggling, that they are not alone; that there are places that they can turn to within their community, um, you know, with community groups, advocacy groups, groups like SPLC. That there are resources for parents.
1: Well, Susan Cork, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Hey, okay, thank you so much, David. Really appreciated the opportunity to speak with you.
1: Susan Cork is director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center.